Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to violence. Welcome to Lost in the Static. Welcome to another episode of Lost in the Static, and yes, it has been a while since we've recorded a Lost in the Static, but there are things going on in our personal lives, mine mainly. So, I am here with Glenn Criddle, who is living a couple of hours into the future. It is very futuristic. I am the future. Yeah, you are Are you the future of this great nation? Not your great nation. (laughs) You have no future. Hey, we're gonna make, we're gonna make this country great again. Limey prick. (laughs) Keep building that wall, man. Keep building it. And then we have Sarah Hanley, who's technically in the past because of her time zone. So technically I'm in her future. Yeah, it's a morning in America. Yada, yada, yada. It's morning in America. Now find your panties, wander home and think about what you did. But that's got nothing to do with the topic. So, but before that, you guys go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code STATIC, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code STATIC at adamandeve.com. So tonight I kind of want to talk about innovation. Er, Okay, that's not the right way. Sometimes how being first doesn't necessarily make you the best. And I don't mean that in a necessarily negative way, but I've been looking at a a lot of different aspects of pop culture, and you find that the people who break from the norm tend to be the ones who fail the hardest, but then the thing that they do becomes the norm, and they don't get any, whether it's credit or, you know, maybe a reappraisal, like, you know, we saw this a lot in the early 80s where a lot of classic, you know, what we would call classic rock songs and musicians would try, you know, electronic albums. And they tended to not be very good. But then electronic music kind of became the norm. Or, I know Glenn, you'll appreciate this one, Birth of a Nation. As racist as that movie is, that movie pioneered. It invented so many filmmaking and storytelling techniques that are now standard. But can you imagine at the time, again, let's leave the racial element out. Can you imagine at the time seeing Birth of a Nation in a theater when that was totally not the way you were used to seeing a movie with edits like that, with time shifts, with with everything that Birth of a Nation and D.W. Griffith did? Can you imagine what it was like seeing that in the theater uh, it would have been quite something. Um, I'm not sure if it was entirely the first one. It's very difficult when you get to that era of film um, to know that 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 there wasn't, you know, those things in existence because so much of that that era was, um, you know, just erased one way or another. It was lost, um, recycled, getting, gotten rid of. It wasn't valued at the time. Uh, but generally, you know, it is considered to be like the first film. I, I certainly consider it to be the first film that actually looks like a modern film. Um, and it's, it was such a, um, such a wonderful example, you know, message aside, 
um, that even the Russians were kind of studying it in their film schools. Uh, Sergei Eisenstein, who did like Battleship Potemkin, learnt a lot from D.W. Griffith's stuff. So seeing that film must have been uh, quite something. Probably quite weird as well to have a story presented to you like that in a visual form. Uh, that's That's the thing. I kind of wonder what the first people who sat down and watched this, whether they um, appreciated what was going on or whether they were slightly confused or whether they were... I'd love to know what was going through their heads, you know, just from the physical experience of watching that film. Sarah, I, I don't know if you've ever seen Birth of a Nation or how recently, but can you as a younger person see that... While you might look at this, and I don't mean you as Sarah, I mean your generation, might look at it and go, God, this is so primitive. Can you see just how pioneering this film was, even when you take into account the silent films that had come prior? Oh, yeah, because it did have some pretty amazing techniques. You know, we're, we're not talking about the other stuff, but... These techniques, of course, they probably came from smaller, you know, um, films. It's probably, you know, this one was used in a Nickelodeon at some point, and this one was used in, a, in a, you know, a, a, a serial. And then it, it, nobody is going to finance a giant idea without there being some sort of proof of concept. And and if this person uh, who presented it either, they're like, yeah, we have people who can do this, this, and this, and this, and it's going to be amazing, and they can actually describe it. Yeah, and because it, it doesn't come from nothing. And the Yes, it, it, it is the, the first film, but nothing is rootless. So, yeah, it, the, all of these... These techniques, you know, maybe if this movie wasn't made, then it wouldn't have, uh, it wouldn't have been exposed to the world as large as it was. It, it wouldn't have become as popular as it did. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I can watch, uh, some of the, the older stuff and, yeah, as, as, that there are different areas which have different, tempos to their film and as long as you remember that then i mean it, you don't even have to watch the entire thing i wouldn't suggest that you watch the entire thing unless you're up for that but you can at least appreciate how uh the how cinematography went from something that was almost like people doing it in their basement to something that was grand enough to be in a theater we're not talking about the subject matter well okay uh, mm. sticking with film what about then video now you know when when video started coming in all the first vhs's or betas were just movies that had come out years prior can you imagine what it was like to be charles band in the very early, I, I think through, like he came up with the idea in like 79 to make movies exclusively for home video. I mean, he, he said it was literally, even when he was going to license films for early wizard video, 
See, his lawyer invented the language in the contracts. This had so never been done before. He created the language of the contracts because there was not a standard contract for this kind of thing anymore. So when he decided, you know what, we're going to make movies exclusively for the video market, he was laughed at. And as we all know, by the early 1990s, that would, there was more direct-to-video product out there than there was theatrical product. Is it? Can you imagine what it was like to be Charles Band back then and having this uncertain video future looming in front of you and him going, fuck it, we, we might as well take the leap? It, it had to be damn exciting because to, to do that, to just, just throw yourself balls out to that, uh, it, it, he saw that there was this emptiness. You know, you, you have, uh, the betas and you have the VHSs and you don't have enough to go into there. It, so of course there's a need. Of course there's people who are going to ask for it. And he wasn't going to be doing the porn stuff, but you know, that for the entire family, they're going to want to be watching things. And, and, and it's, it's kind of insane that at, at the point where this was happening, you still had things on TV and people were recording off of television and nobody had thought even to this point, you know, we should probably make sure that we license the music so that at some point when we put this out on tapes that we don't have to re-record that shit. That was also severely <laughs> short-sighted of them, too. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that is life. That is learning. <laughs> well, okay, Glenn, let's go back to 1978. Meet a Home Entertainment, Charles Band's first company, even before Wizard Video. Okay. Now, none of mm-hmm. these were made direct for video, but just imagine that there were 20 20th Century Fox titles out there, and this was it for v- for video. Halloween, The Groove Tube, Slithis, Night of the Living Dead, Tunnel Vision, Laser Blast, Flesh Gordon, Alice in Wonderland, The Porno, Assault on Precinct 13, The Jungle Book, he had a couple of rock concerts, a Cheech and Chong concert, and some public domain Superman cartoons. Just imagine trying to sell people when that is the entire video library and spending a thousand dollars on a VCR. Yeah, I mean, obviously starting up, um, uh, getting a library, it's actually, it's not that uncommon, um, a problem for any product that's coming out, uh, any new tech. You just look at every, uh, video game console that comes out. It's always that, uh, initial leap of, uh, what's initially available, what's, uh, what's going to be available at launch and all that kind of stuff, which is the problem. But what's interesting is, um, how so many films actually came to really kind of, uh, make a return and, and, um, kind of go on to become cult films because there was this gap in the market. Uh, I know certainly in this country and, and in America, to a great extent, the uh, the studios were very, very reluctant to uh, to jump on board with the VHS kind of movement. They they were worried about the piracy and all that kind of stuff. It, it, so actually, what the, the, kind they, of stuff went in? They were more in? worried about they were more worried about TV. 
because they were worried that if you can buy Jaws for 90 bucks, you're not going to watch it on NBC. So when NBC Movie of the Week shows Jaws, they're not going to pay us as much. They were reluctant, not as much for piracy as they thought it would hurt TV sales. Well, I know certainly over here the um, the talk was more towards piracy, and uh, I've got multiple articles that that describe um, uh, the, the the worries and the concerns and the public um, um, arguments that were going on about the piracy that that VHS could bring. But uh, the thing was, obviously, there was a dearth of big names you couldn't get the big films are very few and far between when vhs actually started so what dropped into the place of those well it was kind of the unwanted stuff it was the public domain stuff it was the titles that were very very unlikely Halloween, to Slithis, uh to you know, make movies, it back flesh gordon the, these are not these are not films yeah. that were going to move thousand dollar vcrs no, you know, you know, I mean, certainly with the stuff that I've um, spent my time kind of reviewing, when you look at uh, like the DPP list and all that kind of stuff, the titles that are on there, uh, there's only like about three or four um, studio productions. The rest of them are, are very small, very obscure, independent productions that the distribution companies kind of picked up and, and set out there. So the... The fact that there wasn't uh, the studio kind of involvement with, with the movement at, at, at the beginning of this thing was actually quite a good thing because these companies managed to bring all this stuff out, all these unusual films. Uh, and it's very easy to look at them and go, well, they were just the crap that nobody wanted to an extent. That is actually true. Uh, but it was actually a good thing, I think, for the film world that uh, these things had the chance to sort of take a footing before the big boys moved in. Uh, and, and that's, I think that's great, you know, cause that's the mainstream, um, basically being too slow to the party and then having to kind of, uh, do their thing which after, is the, the, which you know, is when the, they had to come that's into the, the story market. we hear over and over again, though. The mainstream always mm-hmm. is late to the game. Because, you know, in just video, yeah. we saw this again on, on DVD. You know, nobody knew if this DVD thing was going to make it, so they held most of their good titles off of DVD at first until it was the smaller titles that got DVD sales up there. But at the same time, okay, no matter what Charles Band has done since then, just imagine what it was like to all of a sudden essentially have cornered the direct-to-video market. Just, just imagine mm. what that was like yeah. at at Mita or at Wizard or at Empire. Yeah, but I mean, the thing is, it was inevitable that um, eventually they would have to come on board. Um, it, it's kind of one of those things, you know, how um, mainstream film studios and all those kind of um, very established media outlets, or even technolo- uh, technological outlets. They, they tend to be very slow to want to change. They don't want to kind of, um, jump on board until they, until it's all being tested. 
but the like I say, the nice thing is, you know, the, the Charles bands of the world actually do get to kind of jump in there and um, make their stake before the studios kind of go, oh shit, we got to do it, haven't we? <laughs> well, well, Glenn, what what do the large companies have that works against them that the smaller ones don't? They have shareholders, they have stock prices, they have the next quarter and the next quarter. They have to make sure that they're making extra money, and if they don't, then someone is going to fire them or they're going to lose their bonus whereas charles band has charles band and you know he he has a a truck and a dream and you know mm. he he has so little that there is so little to lose at that point yeah yeah i can i can uh understand that but it's also um there's a kind of desire to maintain the status quo when it comes to the uh, more established positions in the world. Uh, why? Because change is uncomfortable. Change is difficult. It's easier to try and um, work a market that you already know. And that's that's a big part of it as well. It's not I don't think it's necessarily just um, a case of um uh, of going yeah we've got shareholders to look after and therefore we can't take a chance because they do take a chance on uh once in a while i mean you just have to look at something like 3d for instance in cinema the, the massive push that they made uh that is that is you know a huge leap to make as much as i dislike it i kind of look at it and go they did kind of go for it um in my opinion, it's kind of fallen on its ass, but there you go. Okay, but then, <laughs> but sometimes um, innovation is bred through desperation. Like, let's go to the comic book industry. DC Comics in the early 1980s, Marvel was beating the shit out of them. Their sales, DC's sales were in the toilet compared to Marvel. The independents don't really matter at this point, although later on that they do. So DC decided to innovate. They started an adults-only, well, not adults-only, mature readers line of comics. They started hardbound comics. They started maxi-series. They started taking chances on less-than-mainstream characters and pushing them to the forefront. And they, they started these different printing techniques, different marketing ideas. Not a single one of these worked sales-wise. Creatively, some of these were pretty good, but not a single one worked sales-wise. And then by 1990, every single thing DC failed at in the 80s was just the industry standard. Not only with DC, but with Marvel, with all of the independents. If DC had not taken that 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 hit in the early 80s, how different would comic books have been. I mean, yes, they failed at what they did on a technical level. But sometimes do you need to, don't you need to fail to move forward? Because clearly it wasn't a total failure if Marvel then adopted these printing techniques and then the independents adopted these storytelling techniques. Clearly DC did something right. Were they maybe too far ahead of the game? I'd, I'd say that it was, it was an establishment play. And, and, and I don't mean like they are the establishment, though they are, but it, it's, it's the, the initial push. And one of the things that comics has, at least still to this point, is that you have the work out there, the work still exists. And, uh, and you have your readers who, 
go to their friends and tell them about there. And they're like, yeah, there was this great story like five years ago. Oh, there was this early story by so-and-so artist or so-and-so writer, and it was really good. And then they reprint it. And then suddenly this thing that didn't work out so well the first time, people are buying it and people are looking for the old issues, which doesn't help them sales-wise, but it does help with their cred. And uh, and because uh, they they tried these things that didn't quite work out so well, then they've learned from them. And then they they make things like Vertigo. They make things like the the Elseworlds stories, which there was one that did that really well in the '90s, where Batman was a vampire, which was ridiculous and not very good, but people liked it. Uh, but yeah, that that. You, you do the things that you think are, are interesting enough that people are gonna dig it, and maybe it doesn't work initially. But if it's something like print, um, I mean, and, and I say that metaphorically at this point, because you, you could say that for content that is online that is not actually printed. But if it's something that can be taken up by readers, Next week, next year, five years from now, no one is, no one can tell you now whether it's going to find an audience in that time. You'd, you're just not going to get the, the immediate bump from it. Well, I mean, this was all born out of desperation. Cause like I said, DC was like, well, clearly doing the, all of our superhero stuff, Superman and Flash and Justice League and all that, the way we have been isn't working. So we have to try something different. Glenn, I know you're not a big comic book guy, but I know you'll understand this one. Look at like in the late eighties in American TV, which I'm sure had its equivalent over there when the shows came over there. In the late 80s, Fox is not really, you know, a player yet. ABC was just bottom of the barrel. They had no hits. They could not make a hit to save their life. CBS and NBC were beating them every single year for almost four years straight. So out of desperation was born China Beach and Moonlighting and Max Headroom and shows that would end up, even if they weren't big hits, redefining the limits of television and you ask yourself abc would have never taken that chance if they weren't the la in last place would they have glenn no there, there's something that's very comfortable um when when you're successful in just doing the same thing and continuing to do the same thing pretty much like i was saying earlier with the uh with the film studios um so yeah i think when you are at the top, there is a less desire to innovate and more desire just to to basically imitate what you've been doing all the time. Just keep doing and doing it and doing that um, because I mean it's less energy, uh, it, it's less risk. If you've got something which works, it, there's that old adage, isn't there? You know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So when you are in that situation where you are at the bottom and you can't emulate what everybody else is doing, then the only way forward is to try something different to, to take that risk. Cause you've got less to lose. Um, this is going back to Sarah's point, really, you've got less to lose at that point. If you've got nothing that you, you you're not likely to win, then <laughs> you've got to take that chance. And, and, uh, 
do something fairly outrageous. I mean, things like uh, Channel 4 over here, when uh, they started broadcasting, they were doing some very unusual stuff. Uh, and the thing is, as they became much more established, they became very much more mainstream. Now the stuff that they do is, it's not any different particularly to what BBC does on its, um, you know, second, third and fourth channel. It, it, they've, they've kind of played it safe. When they started, they were doing adult movies and all sorts of stuff. You know, they they were just completely out there. They were off the wall. There was arts programs. They created Max Very Hedrum. modern kind of aesthetics. <laughs> and they created, yeah, there was there was opportunities to do that kind of stuff. But that's the sort of stuff like, you know, the BBC were doing back in the early days. You know, the, the kind of unusual sort of programs. When ITV, which is the independent TV, which is like the regional kind of televisions, um, uh, stations when they started over here um, they were doing stuff like you know um, the prisoner and um, those kind of programs uh, tales of the unexpected it, it was because because they were newer and they were trying to find the audience and you know at that point you know it's the bbc that they were trying to compete against and they they were competing against a channel that had government funding you know the bbc is government funded it's funded by the people. You know, we pay a TV license. And uh, the ITV channels don't get that. Channel 4 doesn't get that. They have to kind of rely on the advertising and stuff. So they've got an uphill battle. And they were trying um, something unusual to try and drag people over. And the result, certainly in the early days, was was something quite well, special. Do you think, let's just stick with Max Headroom for a moment here. Now, Max Headroom, obviously, it originated at Channel 4, but it had American co-funding from Cinemax for the, the what, we call, what we'll call the British pilot or the British TV movie. But to bring that to America in 1987 on ABC, that even in last place, I can't believe they did that. Can you? It was a fairly adventurous one. I, I don't know if they were kind of working off how successful... The um, the British pilot was um, whether they looked at that and went actually yeah there's there's really something there or if they just kind of went uh, you know we we can we can sort of work with that you know <laughs> I don't know if it was a tentative thing with these guys when they took it over to America or whether it was like uh, my God that is amazing we've got to do it because uh, I mean at the very least you you were likely to get you know a a season out of it. I think that that was pretty much a given. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's a rich enough idea. So I, I, but I think it was a ballsy one to do, particularly considering the kind of, you know, potential expense of doing something like that. It's not the cheapest thing to do. What with helicopters flying around and certain amount of CG work going on. Um, not obviously with Max himself. That was Aesthetic. a kind of mask basically but the background and all that kind of stuff that's around him was was an animation had the original pilot being co-funded by cinemax maybe Mm -hmm. that had already wet the americans appetite a little bit you know maybe abc wouldn't have done this if cinemax hadn't been involved in the original pilot Uh, it's a it's a possibility you know i mean i i I guess it's a possibility that you know with cinemax involved with the uh original pilot that um they were experimenting with it over here 
because it was on Channel 4 in the early days of Channel 4. It was a place where they could um, get that stuff out to an audience um, countrywide. I mean, it's a nationwide channel. So they could get it onto that channel fairly easily, fairly cheaply. There was space for it to go. Uh, and it's the sort of channel that would go, that's weird. I like it. <laughs> we'll have it. <laughs> so I wouldn't be surprised if that was part of the rationale behind it. They looked at it. They liked the idea. They went, right, okay, let's test the water with it. Let's throw it onto Channel 4 in, in Britain, see how it goes. And the rest is history. Sarah, I mean, I, I know you weren't a big Max Headroom fan, but when you look at that show, can you believe that that a major network put that on the air on Saturday nights for two seasons? It's so different and ballsy. And I mean, that was never going to be a mainstream success, was it? No, I, I didn't even realize that it was a major ABC. network show. I was like, this, yeah, this had to have been like on a Fox or like a, I mean, I don't, UPN wasn't out yet, but you know, it was like, it had to be on one of the secondary ones because it was so, it was very bold in its, we are anti-consumerism, anti, uh, just accepting the, anti the line. Anti-television on television. You know, yeah. You know, a- anti, just accepting what the government and what companies tell you, even the company that owned the, the network, you know. <laughs> It was pretty amazing, and and I I was sad to learn that there was so few episodes. But at the same time, do you think like ABC sabotaged something like that because they put it up against Dallas and Miami Vice, both both of them when oh, they were that, highly that... rated on the same night. So if people were not watching Miami Vice, they were watching Dallas, which meant nobody was watching Max Headroom. So. You give credit to ABC for even making the show, but then you kind of go, you didn't really want it to succeed, did you? Either that or maybe the person who was backing it was hoping that the people who would watch it are the people who wouldn't watch Dallas, which, let's be honest, I'm not the kind of person who would watch Dallas. But... Yeah, that, that really hurts it. You, you want it to be in a time slot where it's not a, up against anything except for infomercials. That, that would be when it would have a chance. Uh, I, I kind of suspect they, they probably, they possibly, uh, liked it, but kind of went, it's expensive to do. <laughs> Cause that wasn't the cheapest se- uh, series to do. I, I don't think it was. No, it, it was, was very you know, There's a lot about for, it. For its time. Exactly, you know, so I wouldn't be surprised if it was kind of put into that position. Yeah, like you say, you know, to deliberately fail, but just possibly just because of they, yeah, they need to stop it, basically. Yeah, without may, that. Maybe there was like one executive who was behind it and they were trying to make it fail so that that guy would fail, which unfortunately we've seen that happen more than once. Well, and it's, sometimes, no, this is totally off topic, but when Night Gallery was on originally in 1969, it got its ass kicked in its first season because it was up against Mannix on CBS, the number one show on TV at the time. So for season two, NBC moved it to another night, and CBS moved Mannix against it again, and they got its ass kicked. So for season three, which was two years after season two, it was up against Mannix reruns. Rod Serling used to say, this fucking Mannix show. 
You know, just <laughs> Night Gallery could not make it because of fucking Mannix. No matter what the, no matter where NBC put it, CBS put it Mannix against it. I don't know if that was a conspiracy or a fucked up coincidence. But. <laughs> That sounds deliberate. <laughs> it almost does after the third time. You know, the CBS is going, you know what? Fuck you, Night Gallery. Yeah, they're, they're like, well, the show isn't even on anymore. Then do reruns. You need to kill Night Gallery, <laughs> goddammit. But, but what about when something is considered a failure, yet was so innovative that the mainstream totally absorbed it? Something like the XFL. Now, the XFL has has been a punchline ever since 2001 when it came out. The XFL has just been a punchline for a bunch of bad ideas that all coalesce together into a giant bad idea. And you can kind of look at it like that because the league did fail. The ratings were in the toilet. There were some kind of bad ideas, some kind of really bad ideas done through the XFL. And there's some desperation at the end. But then you look at so many things the XFL did, the NFL has now made standard. Like that camera that's up above the field that gives you the above shot. The XFL is the first one that did that. Then the NFL decided, hey, that's a good idea. The whole miking the players and the coaches on the sidelines. So during breaks and play, you can talk to, you can hear them talking to each other. The XFL was the first one to do that. Now the, that, now that's standard. There are so many other little play rules. There are certain, certain fighting rules, things like that. The XFL paved the way and the NFL now has used all that stuff to a amazing degree. Why is the XFL still considered a failure? Uh, yes, I get it. It technically still failed, but man, they had some good ideas, didn't they? Uh... So sometimes a thing is a wonderful unicorn that just can't exist in our world. And sometimes it's a, it's a strange two-headed creature and it just falls over dead. And then you just scrape anything out of the carcass that you think is usable. Nice. <laughs> and the metaphor of the night. When, when you get these things, I mean, it, you're talking about production values and all that kind of stuff. And clearly the, from what you're saying, I, I've never even heard of the XFL and, until this moment. Okay, well, th then I'll but, give you some background um, quick. The XFL in 2000, and it didn't come until late 2000 and 2001, Vince McMahon of the WWE decided that the NFL, because he tried to buy some NFL teams and he kept getting rebuffed, so he said, you know what? Fuck you. I'm going to make my own casino with hookers and booze. And he'd created his own league, <laughs> the XFL. And you had harder hits. You had non, technically non-professional players. You had players that weren't good enough to make it into the NFL. And you, you, you had all these ideas and it was basically the WWE attitude brought to football, such as there's no hmm. fair catch rule. You know, in the NFL, you, you know, when, when you do the kickoff and whatnot, the quarterback has a chance to catch it. Uh-uh. Here, everybody rushes it, and you tackle that motherfucker right away. They don't do a coin flip at the beginning. They have what's called the opening scramble, where the ball gets chucked out, and the two quarterbacks fight over it, and whoever winds up with it gets first possession. You know, so I'm not joking, Glenn. 
<laughs> Did they get yeah, weapons? No, they didn't actually uh, get weapons, Glenn, unfortunately. Glenn, I, I, I think that it, it folded because they ran out of players. There were so <laughs> many people that got horrible. That is very true. That this. is very true. But, but, yeah, but that's why you watch it. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, that's the, that's the image that the XFL got was brutality mm-hmm. and that, you know, this is wrestling combined with sports. Now, technically, especially as the games went on and, and the shit got more refined, it wasn't necessarily bad football. It was just different because the rules were different and the ratings were in the toilet after the first couple, you know, everyone wanted to check out the train wreck at first. So the first few episodes, tremendously rated. But they made a lot of enemies doing this, doing the XFL. But like I said, they had a lot of innovations and they have one innovation I wish the NFL would adopt. Vince McMahon had the idea, I'm not going to be paying these players $10 million a year you get paid based on whether you win. Every player got a $3,000 a game stipend, and then if you won, you got an extra $10,000 as a player. If you lost, you don't get shit. I think that's a good idea. Because, okay, if you're getting $10 bucks a season, no matter what, are you really playing your heart out? Mm-hmm. Or if I get to make my rent this month if we win, are you going to play a little fucking harder? Uh, but, but, but Glenn, remember, this is Vince McMahon. There are people from the XFL that he still hasn't paid. Okay, leave that part out. I'm <laughs> saying the idea of you don't get paid if you lose. And, and don't worry, Glenn, apparently in two years it's yes, coming uh, back. So you get to does, experience did they, it. Do they get knuckle dust? I, I, I don't know what the changes I, I, are going to be, but yes, he's announced they are bringing the XFL back in 2020. The XFL is going to be a I, thing. I, I think I there's going to be gene splicing involved. I, see, I, <laughs> I do not understand how the hell it is that every red-blooded American who drinks Bud and wears a baseball cap um, uh, didn't get totally on board with something as mind-bogglingly violent as that sounds. Okay, okay. How did that not Glenn, happen? I, I'll send you a documentary <laughs> after this. It's a, a documentary ESPN made a couple of months ago called This Was the XFL. It's a, I don't care if you like sports. I don't like sports. It's a fascinating look at a clusterfuck happening before, right before your eyes and just how many things went wrong in this league. But again, to go to our topic, there were some really good ideas there. Yeah, but that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, because he's got the opportunity to build it from the ground up and he's... Um, it, it, He's got to make it big and showing. And clearly, you know, uh, being part of the, which was it, WWE? WWE at that time, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, being part of something like that, which is a big show busy kind of, uh, thing. It's all, all about, um, production values, whereas most, you know, kind of sporting, um, uh, organizations before were all about, you know, just barefacedly showing whatever sport it was. You know, you come from something like wrestling, which is very theatrical in its production and all that kind of stuff. And you take that and you put that kind of production value into another sport, then uh, it doesn't surprise me terribly that he came up with a whole bunch of new ideas of of how to show this to the public, because that's kind of where he came from. But but okay, think about it like this: 
the XFL to this day is still considered a joke of an idea. Is it really a joke if the NFL adopted three quarters of the shit that the XFL did? Is it really a joke then? Why is the XFL a joke when it was so innovative, not because of some of the dumber ideas it did have? Uh, hard to say, but I think a lot of good ideas have um, stemmed from uh, from a joke, and a lot of bad ideas have come from jokes. I, I'm uh, sure their attitude didn't. Well, help. Okay, so, okay. Since Glenn not, hadn't uh, heard of it, and it probably didn't air over there. Sarah, do you remember when the? I mean, I know you were a kid, but do you remember the XFL with the promotions and everything? Oh, I, I, I do. I remember the billboards, and they they tried extra hard over here because Los Angeles. You guys hosted a team, gives, yeah. Yeah, we, but what this is something that you might not know. Los Angeles is the second largest media hub in the United States, and the NFL by themselves really hates that we do not give a fuck about football. Fair enough. <laughs> yes, it's. Yes, it, because we have so many teams. We have two basketball teams. We have a hockey team. We have a ladies football team. We have two soccer teams for some damn reason. We have two baseball teams. Yes, we, we need two football teams and an XFL team. We're never going to go see those. We don't care about you. But yeah, they, they tried so hard. There was so much promotion out here. I, I didn't, uh, wasn't it one of the guys from Kiss that was even involved in the team that was out here? Uh, maybe, uh, the, the announcer was, uh, one of the main announcers was Jesse Ventura. While he was governor of Minnesota, he would, he was still an XFL announcer because that happened. But the XFL, the reason I didn't like it was, I, I don't know if I played too many Sega games like Mutant League Football. I was expecting mines <laughs> on the field and shit like that. It just, it was like, it's slightly <laughs> more violent football. Meh. Oh, oh yeah, and I remember they encouraged the, the cheerleaders to date yes, the football Yes, because they players. wanted to create behind the scenes drama and yeah, the, the the cheerleaders were encouraged, Glenn, to date players so in case they broke up, they could have some drama to keep their names in the papers. Yeah, t- that doesn't <laughs> sound like a, a wrestling script. Uh, of course, wrestling is real and unscripted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I say, they're, they're taking all of that that kind of uh, wrestling production and and shoving it into into american football so um well, and, yeah and, and, <laughs> they, they they did encourage better end zone dances i will the, give them that oh was it all choreographed did it, <laughs> did it break out into a three minute number just about <laughs> but, but but see the, the xfl yeah. also had a two very bad things happens to them that were technically not their fault right off the bat the second game nationally televised on NBC, coming off a 54 million people view run of the very, of the inaugural game. 28 minutes into the game, they lose power. For almost 40 minutes, there's no power, literally because someone forgot to gas up the generators. <laughs> Yeah, well, that sort of shit when, does. When they they lost, they I, lost I over sixty percent of their audience in the forty minutes that they were down, and they never recovered, never. And then the third game, they made a very very powerful enemy at NBC. 
And, and this is because it was such good football. Saturday, they were on right before Saturday Night Live. Jennifer Lopez was going to be hosting Saturday Night Live, which is obviously live, right? Mm-hmm. The game went into four overtimes. Saturday Night Live went on an hour and 20 minutes after its scheduled start time. Lauren Michaels and Jennifer Lopez were fucking livid at this shit. But technically, four overtimes also <laughs> says that was a good fucking football game, though, too. Well, everyone needed to make their rent. <laughs> yeah, everyone was like, fuck this. I, you know what? I, I I got two kids in college. I have to win. <laughs> uh, Glenn, uh, okay, you just hearing about the XFL. What are your thoughts on it? I know this is off topic, but what are your thoughts on you have not seen a frame of an XFL game? Are are you are you picturing mutant league football kind of shit like from the Sega Genesis? I I have to say I I, I was more picturing Blood Bowl, the old the, board um, game, yeah, the game's oh, workshop game. Oh, oh, Glenn, this is another thing that makes it like a video game. Players were allowed to choose their own yes. games. Uh, like you know, so, so instead of saying like Madden <laughs> on the back, it would say like Death Blow, He Hate Me, Suck Off, and things like that. I'm not joking. <laughs> Didn't two of them actually get to go to the NFL afterwards? More than that, quite a few XFL ex XFL players later became NFL starters at the XFL. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is just Google "he hate me." The player who put "he hate me" on there, people were asking him like, "Why is that on your jersey?" And he's like, "Cause I'm so good. He hate me, and he hate me, and he hate me, and he hate me." <laughs> <laughs> That's some sad. I'm not kidding, Glenn. Glenn, I wish I were making this up. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at a photo of it right now. <laughs> he hate me. Yep. Uh, was I lying? Yep, he's here. He's right there. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so you know, the XFL is a joke, but like I said, it kind of changed everything. You know, like uh nowadays we, we all look at reality TV. Oh, reality TV. Go back and look at cops. In 1989, just cameramen following police officers at, on their job. Now, the show was a hit, but can you look at that and go, just how we, and I remember watching this in 1989. I was there from the beginning. You go, just how weird was this to watch on a Saturday night? Cameramen following police officers around Arresting minorities. <laughs> Sounds delightful. <laughs> I mean, I, I, Glenn, have you never seen cops? Do they not have that over there? Uh, no, we have equivalents of that. We, we never had that series over here, as far as I'm aware. Uh, uh, if, it, if it did ever make it over here, it would have been about three in the morning. Okay, but when I, when I, there I, is a white guy they arrest, he always has a lack of no shirt, no shirt and a lack of teeth. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Okay, let's say, Glenn, you don't see the beat cops answering a triple murder call. These are noise complaints and, you know, drunk drivers and things like that. But just imagine in 1989, cops and America's Most Wanted come out. And they are such hits. Every single network has a clone on the next season. That says innovation. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't think that whole kind of reality television stuff was was that new with that stuff but i mean obviously that i think that's the first time it was particularly popular by the sounds of it 
No, I, but I, mean, I okay. wish by the popularity the, that there was some sort of unionization available for the people who were working behind the scenes of such reality shows because sometimes they got really fucked up on those shows, the, the guys with the cameras and with the sound boom. Yeah. The, 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 the crew on Cops had to wear bulletproof vests. vests. Yeah. That was that was not fake, and and there were I think in the four thousand plus episodes of the show, I, I do think that uh, a couple of cameramen did get killed at various points. I don't know if that makes it more or less gaudy, mm. but it's it's kind of one of those things though, isn't it? I mean, um, when they're doing that kind of filming, it's almost like being in um, uh, doing news reporting. In in many ways, it's a bit more contrived than that, obviously, but. It's a similar kind of situation that you're in. So, uh, in, in that sort of respect, it's not much different to being a war zone correspondent, for instance. Well, okay. Look at it like this then. Speaking of TV. Now, everybody knows Jerry Springer invented, not invented, but made popular <laughs> that whole trash talk show, guests fighting with one another, you know, constant beeps thing. Does everyone seem to forget Morton Downey Jr. in 1987 when he basically came up with the, the, the style that Springer would then later become famous for? Yes, I know Morton Downey Jr. tanked his own career by being fucking stupid. But <laughs> you, you, you look at those Morton Downey Jr. episodes mm. from 87 and early 88 and they're, they're, you're gonna go, this aired on television? National television? Yeah, uh, and you know the, the the mad thing was, I, I do remember kind of hearing about this stuff um, on American television. We'd see little bits and pieces of it. Uh, we'd hear about it over here, and we'd go, uh, you know, thank God we don't have that over here. And then eventually <laughs> it came over here. So stupid, thanks for that, stupid guys. Stupid Americans, <laughs> stupid Yanks. <laughs> We're going to thank you for Big Brother and all that kind of uh, style of television. It's all well, your you, fault. You did give us some stupid stuff like Mr. Bean. You can take that back, please. No, no. We, we, we sent them to you for a reason. <laughs> But, uh, but I'm, I'm glad that we're bringing this up because you have someone like Morton Downey Jr. who really did, uh, break open new ways of doing television. And there are people who are listening that probably are asking, is he related, related to, you know, the guy who plays Iron Robert Man? Robert Downey and Jr.? You're no, like, no, 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 please. Take a moment, use the YouTube for good, and, uh, and, and you will find things that you never knew existed. Like uh, a very boisterous talk show host to, um, yeah, uh, it. Oh, okay, Sarah. Morton Downey Jr. show is where Roy Innes punched Al Sharpton on live television. See, I I, <laughs> I watched that live. That that's that's something that I I didn't know was a sentence, and now we all do. Yes, that happened. Yeah, yes, that actually happened. And, and Roy Innes is a huge black dude too. They were getting into an argument and, uh, Al Sharpton kept, uh, calling him stupid and he stood up and just clocked Sharpton right in the fucking face. His chair flips over, the security runs in. This is about four years before Jerry Springer, people. Yeah, kids, remember, <laughs> use your words, not your fists. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you are going to use your fists, make sure it's on a, a high-profile TV show. Yes, and live television, so they can't edit it out. Yeah, we need to see that. Well, see, 
See, see, the thing that Morton did where he fucked up, though, he kept having to get more and more graphic, more and more graphic, you know, to keep the ratings up. And he fucked up hard. He claimed this is after the Geraldo getting into a fight with the neo-Nazis thing had happened. The whole neo-Nazis were a big hot thing for this kind of talk show circuit. He claimed a bunch of neo-Nazis jumped him in an airport bathroom, shaved his head, and painted a swastika on his face. The swastika was backwards. You know, like it had been done in a mirror. (laughs) Maybe it was a bunch of peace-loving people who painted it the right direction for that. Yeah, the chafed his head and wanted no. to give him karma. <laughs> yeah, no, it was he was caught faking it, and he hung on for a couple of more months, but he was done after that. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he made his mark. Yeah, and then he couldn't wash it off. <laughs> <laughs> he could have used a mirror. Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay, um, Glenn. And since you've never heard of Morton Oney Jr., you need to see the documentary Evocateur. Mm-hmm about him it'll it's it's very in-depth and plug plug i'm in the credits because the producers of that movie contacted me when they saw some morton downey jr promos and stuff i put on my youtube channel and i sent them the promos that even morton's wife didn't have so i'm listed in the credits right next to cbs news and cnn as archival footage you know cnn cbs news Josh Hadley. Trust it. It's fucking surreal. Must, must be nice. It's, it's surreal been, to have that credit. Must be nice. You've been elevated from um, from uh, bootlegger to archivist. Hey, we don't we don't use we don't use the B word, okay? <laughs> we don't use the B word in my circles. There, Glenn. you're too posh for that these days, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> I, I like to consider myself a media archivist. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that'll stick. Media archivist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, if I rob banks, can I be a cash archivist? <laughs> uh, you're, to, you're a cash if, redistributor. Yeah. If I ever have to resort to prostitution, would I be a genital technician? <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway. So to wrap up, why is it usually the first gets left behind? Now, not necessarily in a failure way, like Morton Downey Jr. The ratings were amazing, but he's largely forgotten to time. You know, the DC Comics experiment of the early 80s is largely forgotten to time the xfl is a fucking punchline nowadays you know birth of a nation people can't get over the racial aspect of it and they can't look at it as you know how groundbreaking of a film it was why is it usually being the innovator gets you forgotten you're left out of history because you're the you're the odd one you're you're strange nobody's used to you yet like us. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that, that's the thing. When you, when you come first in any particular field, um, you, you're breaking new ground. You're learning stuff, learning the way things work. You're setting up, uh, the market for, uh, for the stuff which hasn't had a market before. And apart from the fact that that usually means you're going to be a little bit on the rough and ready side, it also means that the audience has got to catch up with you. Your, your consumer has got to catch up with you. And that doesn't necessarily happen for a little while because people take a little while to settle into change and to accept that kind of change. But, um, yeah, it's a bit of a shame that sometimes the 
uh, the pioneers in these things are the ones who don't uh, necessarily benefit from it. And if you think about like, you know, when um, somebody discovers a new land, it's not necessarily them that benefits from it. It's the people kind of who learn how to make use of that land later on down the line. Glenn, remember that uh, there was a comic book that uh, Marvel had back in the 60s that it was failing hard. And so, I mean, they they even let uh, the the relation of one of the guys, you know, write it and the last issue of it and that was amazing fantasy number 15 and that's known for the introduction of spider-man but people forget that that was still canceled after that that comic line did stop after that there was technically they brought it back in the 90s but that doesn't count but it's not like having spider-man in your last issue is going to save you from being canceled. People will not forget you, but it's not going to help you right away. No, it takes time. I mean, if it's, if it's a new character that you've just thrown in, yeah, people don't know who this character is. Maybe later down the line they've become to appreciate it and then they'll look back and go, wow, actually that was, that was a special moment. <laughs> you don't appreciate it at the time. It takes you a little while to catch up. It's true. But you know what it doesn't take you a little while to catch up on? Would be Glenn Criddle. Where can people find him if they choose? He's hardly an innovator, but still. <laughs> Thanks, man. You can find me on YouTube as LampyMan101 or at CynicalCelluloid.com. Where can we find Sarah? Uh, you can find me uh, just laughing at the idea of football locally over here in Los Angeles, uh, also on 1201beyond.com. You can find me over at Forces of Geek, uh, giving my thoughts on comic books. So, yeah, um, agree, just DC disagree. DC no, Please. And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. Lost in the Static is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.